KDSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Hi, I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about land use and land ownership in all its many forms. Today in the program, we are talking about agriculture with Dr. Sarah Tabor, crop scientist and host of the excellent podcast, Farm to Tabor. We're talking about people who own farms, people who rent farms, small farms, big farms, and so much more. So let's get into things. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, this is the uh, the Henry George program, and I feel there's, there's sometimes people would say that... Uh, you know, talking about land ownership, it's it's irrelevant now as opposed to the 19th century because people farmed then and, you know, now people live in cities. And I think that's people get this wrong because land ownership is very important in cities, but it remains incredibly important with agriculture as well. You know, today it's, you know, it's obviously agriculture is not an insignificant thing that that is still happening. It's still very important. And uh, you write about and, and talk about on your podcast uh, modern agriculture and its relation to land ownership. And uh, I, I guess uh, why would you say that, you know, the structures of land ownership, you know, remain incredibly important to understand in agriculture today? Because uh, we have so much farmland and there's actually a lot of money being made in agriculture. It's it's kind of, I feel like agriculture journalism really kind of gets focused on like the disaster du jour because it's a huge continent with a lot of different crops and, and livestock that are being grown. So there's always something going sideways, right? And the only thing we ever hear is about the thing going sideways. But um, there's a lot of things going well most of the time. Um, when we're not in a trade war, which we could stop at any time. Uh, <laughs> So it's just, um, it's such a huge area of wealth concentration, uh, a place where people can park huge amounts of money and kind of like just slowly nurse off it over time. Uh, it's a huge part of the power base of what's going on in this country. I mean, there's a there's a reason people stole all the black folks land, right? Um, because it's such an important power base. There's a reason that native land was stolen and then just all these other minorities land was stolen, right? So and there's a reason people are, you know, uh, campaigning for president in Iowa right now. Yeah, there's just a reason that Southern culture is based on grabbing land. Like, it's just, it's our business model as a people, right? <laughs> so, um, kind of recognizing that, and, and I feel like sustainability industry has caught on to a lot of kind of the symptoms of why this is destructive, but they don't always talk about kind of like the root cause and, and the business model that built that. So, uh, so that's what I do. I'm a crop scientist, and um, my husband is a historian of slavery, so... When you put those two things together, some things kind of start to pop out of you that you can't put back in. So that's where we're at. So so I think I definitely want to talk about, I think, the big ideas about what does it mean to uh, treat farming as, as, a, as a business and actually use land, uh, you know, productively, use capital productively, as opposed to kind of the more passive models of, of uh, land ownership. And Yeah, I think that's a great topic. So the, so I don't really focus on policy like you mentioned. And the reason for that is it's not because policy is not important, right? It's a huge deal. It frames how things are going to go down, right? Uh, the reason that I focus less on policy is because I don't, number one, I don't work in policy. Um, it's not my strong suit. I work in the production side of agriculture and actually like doing things <laughs> out in the real world, right? So, um, and I, I think you kind of hit it with that question is, 
let's talk about what it means to treat farming as a business and actually use land productively as opposed to the more passive models. People tend to see that as a policy question, and in part it is, but it's also a very nuts and bolts uh, production, like how do we actually run an operation question, right? So everybody is really, really preoccupied with the policy side of agriculture. Like I found that when I go out and talk to people about agriculture, they're like, so what policies? And I'm like, hold up, <laughs> there's, there's a whole lot more to this than policy. Because if you back up and you look at it, the things that people are doing and the way that people are farming in the U.S. is not mandated by policy. It's not even really because of profit. Like it's not because it's more profitable under the current system. It's because it's more convenient under the current system. So the reason people farm the way they do in the U.S. right now is not because of policy. So if you change policy, is it really going to change, right? Um, there's a lot more going on. I think one thing we should really understand is that the policy we have exists because of the way we have always farmed, you know, as colonists in the United States. Um, this policy was not imposed on us by somebody else. It is a reflection of how American agriculture has always worked, right? Um, and it's very different than how people think. We have this narrative that it started out as family farms and then agribusiness took over 50 to 100 years ago. And that is such a cooked up version. <laughs> of American agricultural history, right? So so bottom line, policy is not nearly as influential as people think it is. There are a lot of other things going into why we farm the way we farm. And I think the kind of bare knuckle focus on policy has caused us to neglect all that other stuff, which is actually the thing that created the policy in the first place. So I look at the stuff underneath the policy, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I definitely do see that when I look at these policies, um, it's not like people are blue skying it and they say, oh, what what should we do to create ideal farming? It usually is. <laughs> let's look at the inertia of what, you know, interests want largely to do what they are already doing. And mm -hmm. let's kind of, I guess, uh, accommodate this through policy. Right. I guess when you see things like the use value assessments of taxes, it's usually to make sure that people who are you know, kind of uh, small time farmers at the edge of a city on the edge of profitability can just kind of keep on doing the same thing. It doesn't, it right. tries to kind of make as little change as possible. Right. So let's talk about those small farmers, because I think that's one of the first things we have to get out of the way. Um, a lot of our policy and the way we talk about agriculture is framed around um, the idea that there are small struggling family farmers out there. Number one, that they exist. And number two, that they, um, how to say this, there's something fundamental, fundamental about that, that we need to hang on to as a nation. Like there's some kind of national priority towards making sure that keeps happening. Right. And then that the policies are going to help. Right. So there's three big assumptions there. Let's talk about that first one. I found a really fascinating report and you're going to love this. Like I think as a, as a socialist slash left-leaning uh, podcast, one of the best analyses of agriculture and wealth comes from the heritage foundation, which is a conservative think tank. Um, because uh, every once in a while, like they actually want to try and reduce government waste, which is I think not really the main thrust of the conservative movement. It's to reinforce landlords and status in society. That's really what conservatism is about but they forgot to tell the nerds, right? So this wild nerd goes off and he writes this report going through like, okay, I combed through all these agricultural statistics. I combed through all these tax documents. And here's what I found. The smallest category of farmers in the US, like we're talking by amount of sales they're making. So $10,000 and below. Um, so this is 
you know, the, the percentage of farms with like the smallest sales, right? Less than $10,000 a year. So how many of them do you think are on the bottom 50% for U.S., like in, in the U.S. for income of these smallest farmers? Okay, so to say you're looking at people who they're making less than 10000 on farming, they could be making a lot in other stuff. I, mean, I guess if you take that naively, you'd say, oh, they must be very poor. They must mm-hmm. all be below, you know, uh, in the bottom half. I mean, that'd be the, the naive answer, and I'll, I'll, I'll go with that, even though I know that's not what you're about to say. <laughs> you're like, this is clearly a trap. That's obviously not where this is going, right? It's 2.2%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's it's... There's a lot of, of ideas of saying, yeah, farming is something that people can do on the side even, you know, just it's a mm-hmm. hobby. It's a gentleman farmer. And, uh, mm-hmm. and there's, there's stories of people who it's, uh, you know, they could even be like right on the outside of Boston and to get the tax breaks of being a farmer, they sell uh, one or two Christmas trees a year to each mm-hmm. other and then they get this yep. huge, uh, huge yep. break. Yep. Yeah. And so... I think we have this image of the small struggling farmer and in particular as more information and is being put into the press by some journalists actually doing some homework about how much black farmland has been lost to just straight up theft, right? We have a lot of native farmers and a lot of like immigrant farmers in the US as well. So them being struggling, that's a very real thing. So I don't want to say like, oh, struggling small family farmers don't exist, but they don't look like the folks in American Gothic. Um, and so for every one of those people who do exist, there are like 50 exurbanites with a horse. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's that's what small farming is really about in the United States at this point. And to some extent, it has always been like that. If you actually go back and look at the data, because the U.S. has done an agricultural census in addition to the usual census every five to 10 years for like since the 1800s. So we have really good data on, you know, who's farming, what their wealth is like, you know, what they're up to. And something that's super interesting is the family farm model is not nearly as dominant as it's being played out. It is mostly landlord tenant. And no, that's not just in the South. That's everywhere. That's the Midwest, like Iowa, Oklahoma, the Great Plains, you know, like all these quote unquote heartland states that are supposed to be the home of family farms were the home of landlords and their tenants. And California in particular had enormous tenancy rates. So the core of American agriculture has never really been family farming. Like you look at um, like the old money in New York City, they made all their money being landlords in the Hudson Valley, you know, like (laughs) back in the 16 and 1700s. This model goes very, very far back. And I think kind of the memory of how that's been passed down to us is in a very massaged way. We kind of have um, a cultural memory of like small struggling, just trying to scrape it together family farmers. And those were probably tenants. They didn't own the land. Um, that's where that memory and that image comes from. And then we also have this cultural memory of like prosperous, you know, like family farms or they're independent, you know, they, they have a dairy and they sell a little bit of cheese and some geese. And also all this abundance just kind of comes out of nowhere. And those were probably landlords. Like that's where that image comes from. If you actually look at how the rural economy worked back at that time, that was really more the state of things than family farming. (laughs) And so um, it's thing is we're trying to figure out, quote, what happened in the last 50 years that made it different, because that sets a very different stage than the whole family farm image. Well, it's very weird of what we want and how we view ourselves and, you know, and what we actually try to promote based upon this dream. And this is, it's a dream of Jeffersonian small property owners. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is seen as natural. I mean, a lot of people, it's very attractive 
to uh, people on the on the right uh, because it's oh everyone has property it's good to have property you have, a, you have a stake in society it's very attractive on the left because it's saying oh this isn't financialized it's a small family <laughs> it's a small That's the most bullshit thing but yeah let's go <laughs> yeah it's just I mean it's kind of funny because it has like what is our dream our dream is that every family has a farm you have just a little little plot in the back and you get your vegetables from it and like this it it doesn't even say like what is good in society is to have a bunch of good crops that are grown efficiently and things are abundant as opposed to saying boy people shouldn't treat farming as a business that's that's a really weird goal to have right well it's so interesting to me that the one thing both parties can agree on that small family farms are good is like the least true thing in the entire world right <laughs> You're like, of course, that's the one thing everybody agreed on. Okay. Um, so family farming as we know it, uh, it's fun because our narrative is that family farming was the rule and family farming is natural, right? But it's not. Kind of the, the natural state of agriculture, I think, is landlord-tenant, you know, because they actually have a word for this. It's called differentiation. If you start with a village and everybody has an equal plot, um, over time, just because you know, slight soil differences, like different reproduction in different families, just how that shakes out, uh, different numbers of heirs and all that stuff. Some people are going to get a lot poorer and some people are going to get a lot richer. And that can happen very quickly. And that's how landlord-tenant situations evolve. Every single time that I've ever seen in history that people start with small farming, it devolves into landlord-tenant. So to have this mythology that family farming is natural in the, in the default is very false. <laughs> that's not backed up by any data. Um, it's landlord tenant. That's the default. Right. And so it's really interesting to me that we have this myth otherwise. Right. For that reason, throughout most of the U S uh, agricultural history, landlord tenant was really more the rule. Even if you had a higher number of family farmers in the area, they're not very large. Um, and so you can still have a couple of big landlords kind of dominate the County, which is what you see right now. And that's always been the pattern. I mean, I guess you could say that the pre-enclosure, uh, you know, thing that people point to is you would say you never become disinvested from the land if it is held completely in common. But this would this is also it sounds to me like a very complicated and really hard way to run it if it really is basically a big community garden that is kind of uh, right. Mob OK, rule. so we're going to return to that. <laughs> Commons were not community gardens. They were just there were not nearly as many people back then, right? So there was just a bunch of land that nobody wanted. That's what the commons were. Was there no um, scarcity in that sense? Would, would there never be, like, you pushed to the edges of all the land you want to actually cultivate? Well, it depends on what period we're looking at, right? If we're talking medieval Europe, there was a huge population growth leading up to the Black Death, and then there was the Black Death. So after the Black Death, yeah, there was tons of land nobody wanted because, like, a third of the population had just died. So um, it really depends on the area you're looking at. Um, when we start kind of looking at the 1800s, which is when like Ricardo and all these other people are kind of doing economic theory of rent and everything, you're looking at another period of population growth. Um, so there was pressure on the land at that point. Um, but England and other countries in Europe are really dealing with a lot of that pressure, not by intensifying their agriculture. They're just sending people overseas. Right. Um, so what I think it's just really important to understand when we're talking about the commons, um, there was not always really a plan to deal with those. It was just extra leftover land. Like just nobody really cared what was done with it. Uh, you, you had some communities like in the Netherlands, they had, um, really tight rules. Like if you, if you owned land that kind of went along with a certain share of the commons. And so you were allowed to go to the commons and dig up a bunch of dirt and bring it back to your farm, basically to use as fertilizer. Um, 
you know, so they had very strict rules on how that was done. But at the same time, I don't think we should also portray use of the commons as inherently sustainable, because if you just go and dig up dirt all the time, you're going to wind up with not any. That's why they had, you know, such strict sense of control. Um, if you look at a lot of these kind of quote unquote sustainable traditional farming methods, they actually wrecked the commons. Um, that was a place like part of the deal was you go graze your cattle there. They'd eat a bunch of food and then you keep them in your barn overnight. So they poop all the food they just ate back out. <laughs> and like, that's why manure was seen as fertilizer. Cause if they're just eating grass that grew on your farm, it's not actually adding any nutrients. They would go eat on the commons and then poop the nutrients back out on your farm. Um, and that actually, like, if you do that for a few hundred years, you will degrade your commons pretty severely. So in places like China, where this has been done intensively for thousands of years, and in the UK also to some extent, this is really a big problem. So I don't think portraying the common system as, like, sustainable is really accurate. Um, I don't think it caused degradation as quickly as a lot of the things we do now. But that doesn't mean it was sustainable. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's... It's always the the weird dichotomy of you either have full things held in common and there is no such thing as, mm -hmm. I guess, individual tenancy. And then there's the mm -hmm. idea complete privatization must be the way, you know, enclosure mm -hmm. works, you know, ownership works as opposed to the fact, OK, it aligns some incentives. It aligns the fact that you want to make sure long term you don't degrade uh, what you're working with. But mm -hmm. in the same idea a lot of times if you can create a passive uh, flow of rent from, you know, just ownership and just milking <laughs> your tenants, uh, mm -hmm. one is that could also not exactly incent the best use of your land. And two is it just has a fundamentally uh, inhumane outcome of a lot of people are working and are forever landless and, you know, they can either try to get up on the ladder. But in a lot of senses, it's you, you just don't want this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you, you make a really important point there when you talk about other ways of agriculture. Like, it's really fascinating to me how folks who are, are settlers in the United States, we kind of look back to medieval Europe as like the norm. And you're like, no, that's just one part of the world where people did it one way, right? Um, or kind of like in a, in a certain kind of category of ways. Um, you look at the people who were actually living in North America before Europeans arrived, and they had, like you mentioned, a very different system. Um, you know, like you kind of mentioned they tended to do more just like this is the land where we all live and they would run like just one i don't want to say farm like they because not every not every native group farmed so i don't want to like paint with a wide brush here because there's a huge diversity there's like 15 language groups in north america whereas europe only has three right so that's like the number of different kinds of approaches to life we're dealing with um but there's really more of a tendency to, uh, rather than personal plots, rather than landlord-tenant, it would be like, this is all our land, here's the stuff where we all farm, right? Um, and I actually talked to a lady, Patty Craw, uh, a few weeks ago, um, talking about how her group is like trying to, to reintroduce and, and get back to this agricultural method. Um, so she is Haudenosaunee, I think. Um, <laughs> she was saying... Uh, she was talking about community gardens and she was like, I don't know what's going on with community gardens because they take this good piece of land and they divide it up into these tiny three by five like postage stamps and they kind of like hand one out to everybody. And so it's just like homesteading on a postage stamp. Like it's that model again. Um, and she said, like, if when we have a similar size of land, we're just kind of like, OK, we're going to plant, you know, a bunch of squash, a bunch of beans, a bunch of corn, you know, and, and sunflowers and other things. Um, and we're going to go like 
hey, kids, this is how you take care of it. And everybody just goes and takes care of it. So it's it's all kind of one thing. And it's all like everybody's on the same page about how this one mass of plants is being grown. And so you can just go in for a couple afternoons and take care of it. Whereas if you're on a community garden, like, you know what you're doing with your three by five piece, but you don't know what your neighbor's growing. You don't know what their like goal or plan is. And so if your neighbor can't make it for a week, like, unless you've had some very detailed conversations, you can't just walk over there and take care of what they can't do. Right. It's a very different approach. Uh, it, I think it lends better, like way better to actually producing food on a small amount of land than kind of like that mark, micro parcelization, um, just because you can use people's time better. You know what I mean? You don't have like this land has to be tended by this one person because they're three by five and I don't know where they're growing. I don't know what their goal is, what they're trying to do, as opposed to we just kind of put it all together and we can take turns, um, excuse me, taking care of it. I mean, it's the same kind of issues as far as, yeah, I guess, uh, just family farms and the fact you're kind of giving up, I guess, one of the things that you hopefully have in a, a modern society, which is, I guess, separation of jobs and tasks. If you are, if you are the like the main caretaker of anything, boy, it's like you have to live for that. <laughs> it's like if you can't yeah. you can't leave. It's it's just you you are attached to your to your to your land, and mm-hmm. uh, I I don't know. It's just it's it is nice to know that you can kind of flow in, flow out of different tasks, and there's obviously massive gains in efficiency that way. That mm-hmm. uh, I I don't know. It's it's. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to like add to that a couple other experiences with like collaborative farms that I've seen in the U.S. So we talk about American farming like it always has been and it always will be family farming. Like that's the best way to do it. We've fallen from grace a little bit and that's why we're doing corporate. But those are the only two ways to do it. And the only one that's good is family. Well, there's actually, you know, at least one third method. Right. So that's the collaborative farming we already kind of talked about with that Haudenosaunee group that that Patty Craw was talking about. Um Actually, the first time I really kind of got turned on to this was when I was working um, doing food safety audits. And so we're doing a bunch of family farms in central Washington. And then they're like, okay, next one in your list is the Yakima Nation Orchard, you know. I was like, oh, this will be interesting. And it really was. Um, I didn't really like know what was going on at the time, but I get there and I'm like, wait a second, this is not a family farm. This is like a whole nation, you know, running this operation together. And they ran it in like a pretty conventional, like if you looked at it on paper, you'd be like, oh, this is a corporate farm. Like you have, you know, um, a field lead, you have the, the, the harvest crew lead, you have the packing crew lead, like, you know, you have kind of like the same org chart that you'd have on what you call like, quote unquote, a corporate farm, but they all own it. Like, I don't know exactly what the ownership structure is, but the closest equivalent you would have if you're not native, is just an employee owned enterprise, right? And because of that, like people can kind of have a specific job. So we, we kind of talked about how one of the advantages is you don't have like different people can kind of come in and out of the job. Right. Oh, and you don't have to do every single thing yourself. Cause I mean, it's, yeah. it's a very rare person who can do every <laughs> single task themselves. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The Jack of all trades thing is really, really bad. Like that's what I've learned from working in agriculture. Um, like we all have different skills. That's awesome. We should like, that's a very human thing. We should maybe lean into our humanity instead of out of it. That's fine. Um, so yeah. So the other advantage is like, you can also, you can specialize more, right? You can actually kind of pick a specific job. So you like, they, it was just so tight. Like it was so well run. Um, a lot of farms in that area, this particular food safety audit, they chose one that has a lot of environmental components as well. So it was like, tell us about your pollinator habitat. And with the family farms, because they're jack of all trading it, 
Um, they just don't have the time or the bandwidth to really like excel at every single thing. And so environmental was usually what suffered. And so you go, tell me about your pollinator habitat. You know, go, well, there's this hilly piece of land that you can't really do anything with. So uh, we don't mow it. That's our habitat. Right. Um, <laughs> which is like that. That's great. Um, but it dries out like in April or May. And so nothing's actually growing there. It's not habitat. Right. Um, and it can also be kind of a fire risk depending on the year. Um, whereas, you know, the accommodation, you know, they're like, here's our orchard block. Here's another orchard block between them. Here's a bunch of pollinator plants. We planted them to make sure that there's like a range of plants from spring all the way to fall. Like every single day of the year, there's something growing that pollinators can eat and we're irrigating it. So it's not going to die halfway through the summer. And, and so not only like, are we kind of taking care of nature there? Um, but a lot of your profitability as an orchard really depends on your wild pollinators. Like honeybees do not do as much as people think they do. So a lot of your profitability depends on those wild pollinators. And they're actually giving them uh, habitat and resources they can use to actually build their populations and get stronger year after year after year. Which is something that these neighboring family farms weren't doing because they just didn't have the bandwidth. Like you can have labor-saving equipment out your ears but you still have a limited amount of human bandwidth and attention. Um, you know, there were just a lot of things like that at that place. And so that was a real wake up call. Um, and I think I remember them a lot more fondly than they remember me. Cause I was like dazed out of my head at this point and <laughs> been on the road way too long. Um, but that really stuck with me. You know, that was just really, really interesting to watch. I mean, that's, it's really, it's, it's something you've talked about a lot is, is it's not always about economies of scale as far as big farms, small farms, but it usually you have to be competent and putting a lot of, of thoughtful labor into it at any scale. And there's, there's this weird kind of uh, mindset of just, oh, small is beautiful. You know, if you're a small yeah. business, if you're a small landlord, you must be, you must be better. And like, <laughs> and I, I think in most people's personal experience, a lot of times if some small operator, they usually don't know what they're doing and how do they make up their margins? How do they make anything work? They usually cut corners. They exploit people. Like there's nothing beautiful about, uh, you know, a small operator. Uh, it's right. yeah. Yeah. Like it, it can be done well. Um, I think we're really attracted like moths to a flame of the idea that it can be done well. And yeah, it can. But if you have the chops to do it well small, you're you're not going to stay small for very long. Um, and yeah, I've had so many bad experiences, with really shady small business operators. Like sometimes it was, you know, just a company that I was working for as an employee. And it's it's rough because if you I've also worked for large global scale factories. And when you're working for one of them and you say my boss is exploiting me, people believe you. When you're working for a cute little mom and pop and you go, hey, they're stealing my wages and sexually harassing my husband. <laughs> they don't believe you. Um, you know, so you're dealing with a very different environment as an employee. There's almost the power imbalance uh, changes um, in a way that favors the the small operators because no one believes they're capable of doing ill. Um, but something I'll tell you is a lot of the farms that I've worked with, like in my experience, the ones that were the most proactive about making sure there was no human trafficking in their labor supply was big. Like it was a family operation, but it was a big one. Like it, if you look at it, you would be like, this is a corporate farm. It was just family owned. Right. And that's the majority of corporate farms in the United States, like 90, 
five plus percent of the farms in the U.S. are family owned. Like corporate farming's not really a thing except in limited areas of California. So they're a family operation that you, you would call corporate. They were big, right? And the places that I've seen that were the most dependent on human trafficking networks for their labor were the small family operations. Because like we talked about, like this jack of all trades thing, hiring good quality, um, not trafficked labor is very, very hard. And hiring trafficked labor is very, very easy. That's the whole point of human trafficking is to make it easy and convenient. <laughs> to get people right and you, and you um, do it to make money in the end you know you don't do it just yeah. neutrally you, you you intend to come out ahead yeah well it's i don't think it's as much about money as people think because um you know people who are being trafficked i mean yeah they can work fast and kind of because they're under duress and stuff um but at the same time like long term it's not a great model uh you have a lot of burnout um you know it's it's, it's just not a sustainable labor model um, but but what it, you, but if you're lazy, it it, it helps you avoid yeah. the overhead. It's not profitable. It's convenient, mm. and I think that's a huge uh, that's a huge difference that the left has really not seemed to recognize, and it's something that makes me nuts, right? So like, here's the deal: is like profitability, you can go about it two ways, right? You can go about it the the cheap and easy way, which is just minimize your your costs, and then whatever happens happens. Or you can also, uh, you can invest a lot and you can have a really high productive system, which I think we should be talking about. Like, that's what we mean when we say sustainable agriculture. We're investing in the soil. We should be talking more about investing in the people because I think that's what it really comes down to. You can't invest in soil if you don't have people who, like, it's it's like on the airplane when they're like, put the oxygen mask on yourself first before assisting the child. It's not because you're more important. It's because you literally can't help the child if you're passed out, right? So we can't help the soil if we're passed out. Um, there, all these sustainability techniques are higher investment, like, and, and they're actually more profitable. And that's the thing that um, that I think is going really underrecognized. Things like cover cropping, things like good labor, those make money. They make money. They are already profitable, and yet people aren't doing them. It's not because they make money. It's because they're convenient. And so <laughs> I wish we could be a little bit more open and upfront about the fact that that's happening. Um, we are cheating ourselves when we do the sustainability stuff. And I think if farming were actually about maximizing profit, we'd already be doing it a lot more sustainably. That's the scary part. I mean, this is it's kind of a weird assumption uh, is that everybody is optimizing the revenue everybody's maximally productive and efficient and everyone is you know obviously on ball when i think this goes a lot with when you talk about renting versus owning if you're a renter you kind of know what your business is you actually have to <laughs> you you have to be uh in the black to to just be doing it at all if you're if you're an owner you could just be like underperforming wasting your land and just mm -hmm. generally, I think, goes hand in hand with just being uh, just extremely inefficient, wasteful. And and that goes mm -hmm. that goes in hand in hand with uh, exploitive as well. Yeah. So kind of kind of going along with that. So something that's a really interesting uh, situation from U.S. history. So um, I work in agriculture and I work and live in the South. So um, there's some H.R. habits that die hard and. uh <laughs> <laughs> and again, like people think it must be limited only to the South. And you're like, no, if you look at how agriculture works across the U.S., um, U.S. agriculture in general was born in slavery. And it just kind of spread from here on out. 
Um, like sharecropping in a lot of ways was kind of like, how can we best recreate slavery with what we've got? Um, it was already happening up in the Midwest and, and Pacific Northwest. And then people kind of like adopted post-slavery systems into it. One of the things that they did. So, so land ownership is a zero sum game when it comes to wealth, right? Um, because if you own this piece of land, nobody else can own that piece of land. And if you and your five or 10 buddies own 50 to 90% of the land in the county, you run that county because it's the only productive asset in the area. And you can band together to make sure it stays the only productive asset in the area. Uh, what that does is it entrenches your power in the county. So not only do you run it, but you're going to keep running it and your descendants are going to keep running it for time immemorial. And that was really kind of the business plan more than making money per se. Like, yeah, making money goes along with it, but it was really about building and reinforcing kind of local patronage networks. Like it was, it's like high school, right? Nobody's trying to like accrue a certain number of cool kid points they're just scrambling to the top of whatever stupid little high school we're kind of locked in at the moment right i mean economic yeah profitability is not the same thing as power and mm -hmm. a lot of people yeah you can leave some money on the table if you if you can preserve your power hierarchy right and so in order to keep that going so again one of the things they want to do to maximize their power is make sure there is no other economic activity besides farming in the area because if the only economic activity is farming, then you can control who has power by just kind of monopolizing the land. It's no good to grow cotton. You need to turn it into cloth, right? So uh, you, you need mills. And people understood this. Like the people who are buying and selling people understood that there was a supply chain involved. They actually did a lot of processing on site. Like they would, you know, they had the cotton gin. They would move the seeds and all that stuff. Um but they refused to have textile mills in the South until very late in the game, like within a decade or two, really before the Civil War. They refused to put cotton mills in and turn it into cloth. Um, and so that wound up getting kind of left to the North. And the reason they refused to do this in their area was because nobody wanted to have a mill because then you'd have a couple hundred employees who, um, you know, don't answer to anybody except the mill owner. Like they didn't want to have a mill owner around telling them what to do. And they didn't want to have like loose employees at a factory running around. They only wanted to have basically owners and enslaved people. That's all they wanted. Mm -hmm. Anybody else was kind of like an uncontrollable quantity and they didn't want to have that. So they refused to build any of these anywhere in the South. So in effect, they wound up putting a giant bottleneck between themselves and the market. And if you pay attention to food, that's still a thing. You have a lot of people who raise, say, cattle, and they haven't invested in packing. Um, <laughs> that's how the Chicago meat packers happened, is a whole bunch of people invested in cattle and then didn't think, maybe I should build a slaughterhouse to go with it. So someone else came in and did it and basically monopolized the market, right? So these, these poor little slave owners who screwed up their business model made the same mistake. Uh, these dummies. Uh <laughs> You know, so they, they neglect this entire part of supply chain in an effort to concentrate their local power. I mean, if they're and, really uh, smart about it, yeah, vertical integration, they could have really made sure they, but that's a lot of work, you know? Yeah, that, well, they refused to vertically integrate because that would mean introducing other people into the supply chain and into their local area, and they just didn't want to share power. They wanted to stay on top of their local heap. And then if you allow manufacturing, that, like, then the heap can increase, like, there's no... A, there's no limit to how much the heap can increase like land. You can limit, you know, there's only so much land, right? 
Um, but someone, once you start building one mill, if it really takes off, then people can build 10 or 50 mills there and you just have no idea where it's going to go. You can't control it. Um, that was how they viewed it. So these things all wind up getting built in the North. And then they complained that all these wicked Northern merchants were like charging them out the nose and not being nice to them and not giving them the credit that they deserved. And, um, you know, don't feel bad for them at all. <laughs> you know, they, they did this to their own selves through their, their greed for power. And, um, you know, but they really put on this whole propaganda war about how they were being, you know, treated badly and they deserve better and, and they're farmers. So people should be nicer to them. And you really hear echoes of this throughout the U.S. food chain today, right? You hear a lot of farmers going, hey, you know, these, you know, these food processors, like I'm not, I'm only making like this many cents on the dollar, you know, um, these people aren't giving me a good price. Those talking points go straight back to slavery. Well, and I'd say even before that, it, it reminds me of quite a bit of just the stability of feudal power structures is that mm -hmm. overall, you know, mercantile class people, this is a sideshow. You can ignore them. Mostly it's just how many people are you tied to who, you know, and, and just about power structures in this kind of very well-defined hierarchy. And there is no other power to speak of. And finally, mm -hmm. industrialization, uh, you know, kind of toppled that. And uh you know, by mm -hmm. the same way, it's like it really does. A, a big thing is what percentage of people, by and large, work, you know, in farming. And I, I just mm -hmm. like 1840 or something, at least in America, I was looking this up like 70 percent. Uh, and then you trace it down until till now, less than 5 percent mm -hmm. of, of people are in agriculture now. So right. it's it's not exactly like you have this captive laboring you know, audiences, mm -hmm. as it were. Now they actually have to kind of maybe work in nostalgia and say like, oh yeah, we're a farming nation when really there's not that many people. So why don't we just try to say, hey, let's actually just make, let's produce crops as best we can. It's not like it's right. a lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. I feel like a lot of uh, our agricultural policy is not, it has nothing to do with economics. It's about maintaining a bunch of people's personal lifestyles. And that is like, that's evil. That's evil. We should not be doing that. Um and, and there are industrialized countries that have really healthy export agricultural economies and family farms that don't subsidize at all. So it clearly is doing nothing for um, for actually improving agricultural production. It's just about subsidizing lifestyles and making it more convenient. Um, New Zealand's a fantastic example of letting that go. Um, and there's, I guess, two different yeah. ways you can say, oh, if you're maintaining a family thing, it could be because, oh, you have a pizzeria down the block and they make great pizza mm -hmm. and they all love it. Well, they're actually doing stuff as opposed to the weird thing about kind of uh, the idea of a land-owning aristocracy is mm -hmm. that it it you, it really isn't about working. They're they're at best management class and sometimes mm -hmm. even less than that. And it's more about oh yeah, you know, working is for the lesser people. And yeah, yeah, I live in the land of southern gentlemen, so there's a lot of that going on down here. <laughs> uh, and, and something I kind of want to want to go back to is like you mentioned the sustained the the solidity and stability of feudal power structures. It's kind of funny because we talk about stable like it's inherently a good thing and like not if it involves a permanent underclass. Like, yeah, that's very stable, but is it good? So we had, again, so we have this narrative that everything used to be small family farms. And then agribusiness happened and all these family farms started buying tractors and then they started gobbling each other up. And that's not what happened at all. Um, <laughs> what happened is, so... You may recall, like folks will, will mention from time to time, 
oh, the countryside used to be super radical. There was like populism and there was the Grange and like what happened to that man? Um, so what happened to that was the countryside used to be full of labor. It was full of sharecropping, you know, like, like we were just talking about the myth of, of everything being family farms was not true. It was a few landlords, a few family farms, and then tons and tons of sharecroppers and the sharecroppers, um, we count them as farmers on our agricultural censuses, which is why it looks like there were so many, um, <laughs> which is why it looks like there were so many farmers. Yeah. Um, but like at least half of them were just sharecroppers and tenant farmers. Right. So, they think of themselves as labor. They unionized like labor. They agitated for political movements like populism, like labor. And their bosses, the landowners, did not like this at all. So that was actually a big force in like the widespread adoption of tractors uh, and other farm mechanization. So if you look back in the timeline, it looks like um, all this mechanization started a lot earlier. Like you kind of start seeing the 1880s, 1890s. That was really just in a few concentrated, big commercial, like actual corporate farming areas. They were fairly short-lived. There was like a giant wheat boom in Minnesota and on the Great Plains in like the 1870s through the 1890s. And then it collapsed and then family farms came in to pick up the bones. Um, so again, another great disruption of the family farming first and forever narrative, right? Anyway... Was there, um, was there much of, uh, I mean, now you certainly in a lot of different businesses would say that uh, there's a fear of technology is going to disrupt the laboring class. You're replacing all these workers with a tractor. And right, I right. Mean, it's, it's, okay. it's at best, that's incredibly disruptive. And... Right. So hold up, hold up. We're going to we're we'll get back to that. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so, so that's the myth, right? Is that like um, all these family operations got tractors and, and kind of like, uh, demolition derby each other out. But what really happened is it was management replacing their workers with machines. It was just plain old replacement of labor with machines. And so there are all these tenant farmers who are basically like evicted and they go off to the cities and then the countryside was drained of people. That's why the countrysides are no longer full of people. It's because management fired all the labor and told them to pack off to the city. Um, <laughs> and that's why countrysides are super conservative now. Labor is gone and it's nothing but management left in themselves. Um, yeah, super fun, right? So, um, so the, it's really interesting because nowadays those landowners, like the, the folks who are descendants of those landowners kind of talk about like, we're a seventh and eighth generation family farm in Illinois. And I'm like, okay, but for how many of those generations was your land actually taken care of by like sharecroppers on a one-year lease? That doesn't count. Um, <laughs> and, and nowadays, they, they drive their tractors themselves, right? Um, so they really kind of tend to portray themselves as like farm laborers, you know, because we go out and we work on a farm. Um, but most of their money comes from, you know, like in self-employment, you're both your own employee and your own boss, right? Uh, most of their money comes from the boss half of things, not the employee half. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit of sleight of hand. So, and it's it's usually yeah. not the case that, that that it is they're completely self sufficient. It's you know there there is still I guess you know some amount of 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 people who would come in at different times maybe during during harvests. I mean, mm -hmm. how, how many people like how many farms would be one hundred percent self sufficient? Like you could be marooned and or less. That's not a thing. Yeah. That's never been a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, you have some people who would go out on homestead, right? Like on the prairie in the middle of nowhere, right? Um, but they did, they went way into debt to do it. 
because you have to bring all your tools with you, right? So you're already locked into not actually being self-sufficient. You have to grow a grain cash crop uh, to pay back all these debts that you incurred to go out and get the land in the first place. Um, and so you, like you're, you're locked into the market economy from the get-go. I think there's this fiction of, this is, okay, so colonial theory, right? We're getting into this fiction of white nativeness, right? Like we've always been here, we're traditional. Well, we all came on a f***ing boat, <laughs> right? And we all had to pay passage on that boat. We all had to pay some money or enter some kind of contractual servitude agreement with somebody to get land. White farming in this continent has always been financialized. There is nothing indigenous. There's nothing uh, self-sustaining about it. It's always been part of a globalized trade system, you know. Um, and so it's really ridiculous to me when folks who are not indigenous Americans complain about farming being financialized. Our very existence here is the result of global finance. And so it's very ridiculous um, to have kind of colonizers talk about col like having a family farm as a result of colonization, it, which is part and parcel of like a financialized global economy. Right. So it's just it's completely ridiculous for folks like us to kind of go like, man, I just wish we could live in this non-financialized way like we created this. I mean, it's 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 to me, it's it's just downright scary how this idea of kind of this anti-capitalist left can really horseshoe theory around to being mm -hmm. kind of the the fascist idea of the pastoral, you know, mm -hmm. native. That's the way it used to be. And it's yeah. I, I, I if there's any hope I see in a lot of stuff, it's realizing that production and, you know, and, you know, commodity uh, commodification is something that almost inherently needs to happen if we survive. But what we need to do is to make sure everyone benefits. And when you talk about yeah. the kind of indigenous uh, farming models that are run like a corporation, but are a lot more like a cooperative, that's mm -hmm. very promising in a way that, yeah. uh, you know, just, oh, yeah, some guy's going to just, you know, keep it within the family. It's going to be natural. It's just not yeah. as, as promising. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And it, it's so funny, too, because I think when you talk to to non-indigenous people in the U.S. about, hey, there, there's a cooperative uh, native model that we should really be considering very seriously. Like this, it works really well. It's competitive on a global level and it's humane. So that's kind of a big deal. We should think about that. Right. Um, but you talk to folks about like native agriculture as a thing and they hear like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's some ladies with some corn squash and beans and a hoe. And you're like, no. Half the farmers in Arizona are native and they're global players in like cotton <laughs> and olive oil, right? Like they're a big freaking deal because they've been farming this area sustainably for over 5,000 years. Like they have some experience in the business. And um, it's been like such a gift to talk to native women who are working with agriculture like Deb Kroll and Patty Craw, or Patty Craw, excuse me, Um because they bring a perspective that you just don't hear from white socialists. They're like, listen, like we had intercontinent, like we had continental trade networks, right? Uh, trade was something we always did. Uh, our people were pretty mobile. Uh, we were all over the place. Um, and so kind of casting trade itself as the cause of evil, as opposed to say like the private accumulation of wealth and like exclusivity uh, is really missing the point. Um, and you can't address the problem if you can't understand the problem. And so it's been such a gift to kind of like hear what these ladies have to say. And yeah, I mean, I think that's you talk about one model as being something which is this, you know, kind of heavily cooperative. Uh, and I mean, I think one thing you also talk about a lot is um, is just capital intensive 
farming operations that can really produce amazing yields. And this is something yeah. you see like in, uh, you know, I think if you ask people where is the second largest exporter of, uh, of crops in the world, uh, people would usually not go and guess Netherlands if they don't know about, mm -hmm. about right? this kind of capital intensive thing. And you talk about for vegetables, we don't do that here in the U.S. to, to the degree, <laughs> certainly, that they do uh, in places. Uh, I don't know if I would be, you know, just, I guess, out of line to say is the fact that we have the gift of so much land, the fact that we don't use our land very well. We just sprawl. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Like without a, without a doubt, there's no question about that. And it's, it's actually something you'll hear all the time is like, well, why don't we do this thing that works really well in you know, the Netherlands, even Mexico, um, Japan, China, why don't we do this thing that they do that is super established, it works really well. And it'll always come back to, well, the land and water and labor here are too cheap, right? So we're stuck in that low investment model. And it is 100% because we just have so much freaking land. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because we have we're doing agriculture at such a low level in this country. Like, I think we talk about how how developed American agriculture is. And we're very developed in the sense that we spend very little labor. Um, but our land, like our per acre, per acre production is not great. It's really not like, cause everything has been focused on minimizing labor. Um, because the U S again, agriculture has been dominated by a management class that just wants to get rid of labor with machines. So they don't have to pay them. Like that's what U S agriculture has always been about. It has nothing to do with actual, um, maximization of natural resources. Right. And if it, so, if it doesn't hurt your bottom line, what is yeah. actually keeping your, your feet warm to, to do it? And I, I think uh -huh. that's, um, I was just like looking at a stat on how many uh, acres of land were used for agricultural. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, reached about a billion. And this is decades and decades and decades ago. And it kind of just plateaued, plateaued mm -hmm. off. And mm -hmm. it, you kind of imagine past that, they probably sprawled out to the point you can't sprawl out anymore. And mm -hmm. I mean, what exactly is... What is preserving the wilderness in some sense? You know, if it's a place like the American West, there's explicit mm -hmm. programs to make sure that farmers just don't sprawl out and eat up every single acre. But it feels like most of the country, what's stopping them from just, oh, yeah, let's let's consume another million acres and just use it poorly. Uh, nothing. <laughs> you know, it's just like we kind of carved up all the land, you know, one to 200 years ago. And we're just kind of like coasting on it ever since. Right. Um, so. Something that I'm really interested in that I think we should talk more about just as a society. Um, so we have conservation trusts, right? We have landowners who may be farmers. They may just be rich people, you know, um, who own all this land. And they're like, I want to sign this over to a conservation trust. And everybody's like, yes, this is the right thing to do. Um, this is the best thing ever. And I'm like, weren't there people living there before we got here? <laughs> Like, why not, why not redeed the land to like the people it came from? Right. Cause the reason a lot of this land goes into conservation trusts is because honestly, frankly, they can't find any way to, to monetize this land. Right. And so they make a big deal about being magnanimous and donating it back to nature and they're going to get a giant friggin' tax break. Right. Um, that's, that's the business model here with land conservation trusts. Um, and again, like the sense that we're deeding it back to nature. Well, like then the quote unquote nature that existed when our people arrived here, right. Was native people stewarding the land. Like it wasn't left to its own. There was fire management. Um, you know, there was a lot of cultivation and kind of grooming of net of wild lands. 
um, we kind of have in Western culture, there's this dichotomy between people land and wild land, right? That wasn't a thing. Like it was all just land. And sometimes we're here and sometimes we're not. Like sometimes we, we come through a place and we, you know, might gather arrowroot for a while and then we're done and we go somewhere else and we hunt. There was no dichotomy between people areas and, and quote unquote wild areas. That wasn't a thing, right? Um, it was all groomed and it was all managed to some degree. Um, and so you have a lot of settlers, you know, they kind of come through and they go, especially when they got to the prairies, like, oh my gosh, it's so green. It's so lush. There's all this game, yada, yada, yada. Well, that's because this land was groomed by the people who live there to be, to be really good habitat. Um, and so it's, it's completely ridiculous when we make a big show of like, quote, giving it back to nature and nature in fact requires, you know, it, at least the ecosystem that we arrived at is very much a result of human grooming to make things good habitat. Right. Um, so it's really, it's just nuts. <laughs> I, mean, I, guess <laughs> I just don't know what to say to that. Like, it's just nuts. It's the fact that we can't like our entire cultural model is built on monetizing land. Right. But there's all this land that we can't monetize and due in large part to overproduction, which because we just grabbed too freaking much, right? That's like a really open admission that we just freaking colonized too much. And so rather than maybe giving it back to the people we stole it from, we're going to make a big show about like honoring nature and stuff. Um, but we don't actually know how to groom the land because that's never really been part of our culture. It's just messed up. So <laughs> it feels, I mean, I just, I, as a, as a cynic, I mean, it's, it seems like the ideal way is that you create this kind of sustainable system in which we are living on the land and not just using it up. And this actually can even, even exist at the same time. If you compare this to like, there's just very weird ways that we have to explicitly make rules on how we use land because yeah there's nothing stopping you from just grabbing all of it and i i kind of just wonder if explicit wilderness preservation isn't just the most pragmatic route but it's very weird how a lot of times instead of doing explicit public land private land you mm -hmm. get this weird worst of all worlds where this is <laughs> i'm just saying this like kind of when i you talk about this uh taxing agricultural land at the edge of a city less it's kind of just a bad way of doing kind of a green belt it's like oh yeah the farms yeah. are there but really you're just subsidizing the farms to be future uh land speculators or future mm -hmm. you know developers and mm -hmm. you're just kind of lining their pockets uh here in my backyard in silicon valley you know, mm -hmm. these were all orchards a couple decades ago. They have the Williamson Act in California is something to give lower assessment to uh, farms. Uh, mm -hmm. And were the orchards preserved? No. I mean, and, and there's no <laughs> like it's so like, what did you what did you do here in the end? You enrich the orchard mm -hmm. people slightly more. Uh, and that usually went to a very, you know, top of the line people, the people who were the real movers and shakers. And you knew how to really buy up the land well. Uh, and it reminds me a lot of kind of you have like historical preservation areas are kind of like a public museum, but instead they're just kind of like, oh, they continue to own it. But, you know, they they're, they're kind of in the public interest. Let's let's essentially uh, cater to them to do this. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and for that reason, like it's so here's the thing is, is people kind of go like, well, people who own land, if they want to give it back to nature, like, shouldn't we encourage that? To which I would say. If people own land and have no intention to do anything with it, why the should they own it in the first place? You know? Yeah. <laughs> why do we even have the concept of private land ownership for land that we've declared we have no intention of using, right? What is that? 
what is that about? Like they're finding some ways to keep monetizing it, like tax break, um, CRP credits, that kind of thing. They're, they're still extracting rent from that land. That is still the business model. Um, and so if we're really serious about this conservation thing or like quote, giving it back to nature, like there are other models that will accomplish that, but we're still kind of entrenched in this. We're going to extract rents from land ownership model. And like the, the main thing is it seems like no matter what there is a cultural, I guess, knee jerk reaction of saying there is absolutely nothing worse in the world than to see a landowner have their land taken from them. Uh, and, and I, you talk about whether it be like a homeowner tax out of their home, whether it be a f- small-time farmer who's unprofitable, who goes out of business, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not they should go out of business, this is considered absolutely morally outrageous. And yeah, it's sad, but like people aren't as sad for renters, you know, laborers and so on. It seems like of all things to waste tears on, I mm-hmm. it's like way down on my list, but for whatever reason, it is considered the one thing we absolutely must not do is deprive people of land if they ever were part of the landed class. Right. Yeah. So I think the United States just makes so much more sense if you think of it as like a 200-year-old real estate hustle. Um, (laughs) That's what it is. Like older if you go back to when people first landed, you know, and we became independent at some point. But like it's it's a real estate hustle. That's what our, our nation is built to be, right? And so like, of course, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. That's not the point of what we're doing here at all. It's so fascinating kind of because you'll you'll there are some troubles in in farmland right now. Um, If you there's a lot of articles coming out right now about how farmer so-and-so was forced out of business. Right. You should look at these and like read between the lines because it's hilarious what's actually going on versus what the journalist thinks is going on. (laughs) So like there was this one. I ran into a couple months ago. I actually linked it to a buddy who works in agriculture. We just made fun of it forever. Um, I was talking about, I don't know his name. We'll call him Bob. Bob was a grain farmer. And and kind of this whole discussion, like I just want to make a note, has been kind of centered around grain farming because that's kind of like, I guess, what we consider normal in the U.S. is grain farming. But, um, you know, there's also dairy, there's fruit and vegetable. But in this case, we're talking grain because we've got these soybean tariffs, right? Um, So that's the corn and soybean belt is what's being impacted for the most part. So Bob in the, in the soybean belt, um, this is an article about how he's being forced out of business. And if you read it, he's not going out of business at all. He's selling his equipment. That's what's happening. So his, his combine and everything is going to auction and everybody's like, you know, real sad. They're, they're being stoic about it because they're farmers, but they're sad. Um, and he's selling his equipment. All right. But if you look at what's going on. Uh, he's talking about how he's going to have to rent his land out to somebody else now. Oh, no. Or in other words, <laughs> this guy was not forced out of business. He just retired to become a land baron. And he's 68 years old. Don't pity this man. <laughs> it's, it's so weird. I mean, you know. like, if like, every business is the same. There's there's all these articles now uh, just in our cities about uh, like an, an SF pie shop going out of business. And it's, I mean, like, it's like, Oh, you can't afford, you can't afford to pay, uh, you know, labor anymore. And they're just, you know, it's like, they just can't make, they can't make this pie shop work. It's been around for 35 years. It's so sad. Mm. And like you read between the lines there and it's, Oh yeah, they own the place. They're selling it. They're Mm -hmm. getting like, uh, many, many, many millions of dollars for it. It's like, boy, you know, it's like you can talk about in aggregate. It does suck that our cities are changing and 
uh, and the money is flowing upwards to the few, and a lot of people don't see the benefit. But it's weird that we pity the people who actually are cashing out. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, wow, that's that's a great example of that same phenomenon. Is um, yeah, I just wish there were like I don't know some kind of journalism schools out there that would teach journalists to look at things more critically, right? Um, yeah, like you'll see that kind of thing all the time, and and kind of um, kind of related to that. Like I think we've kind of danced around this a little bit, but again, most folks in agriculture are part timers, um, like ninety plus percent, right? So they're, they're making their living doing something else completely different. And farming is something they can do because they have family land. And like, if you look at the numbers, the vast majority of agriculture happening in the United States is hobby farming. It might be on 3000 acres, but they're still doing it for the lifestyle, right? Um, like they're not doing it out of economic need. Um, they're not even necessarily making money on it. And this is made out to be a big tragedy, right? Like they're forced to take a second job and you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> lots of people apparently want to farm, even though they can't make any money at it. So we, we have, we have lots of people who really seem to enjoy the lifestyle, which is great. Um, I enjoy taking bubble baths. I don't think anybody should like subsidize that just because I enjoy doing it. Um, you know, but that's, that's kind of the attitude that is taken is there's a whole, like farming can be very rewarding. And a lot of people happen to inherit the land and they have like estates that can handle the financial impact of doing farming and the unpredictability and they have a day job and that's what they do is they do it because they enjoy it. And again, this is kind of made out to be a huge tragedy as all these farmers are forced to do it um, at, at basically no income. And the way I look at it is no, people are willing to do it at break even. Agriculture is mostly made of scabs. That's why nobody's making any money. You know, <laughs> well, and but you can't say that out loud. That's that's verboten. And, and there's a second thing there, which is saying, like, if you are already a farm owner who enjoys this as a hobby, you deserve it. But if you are on the outside looking in, you mm -hmm. would need to rent. And to rent, you're not going to be able to rent at a hobbyist rate. You'll be renting at a rate you have to be serious about it. So it's just saying mm -hmm. we should subsidize a hobby for a privileged subclass that can enjoy it, as opposed to saying, hey, let's create a world where... Yeah, you know, where actually land is used so well that people can hobby farm for the right price at a way that actually is open to everybody as opposed to just kind of the the aristocracy, as it were. But you put that so well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so a big part of that kind of hobby farming business model, right, and, and part of why they're not making any money, um, there's, there's actually a whole lot of money in farming if you do it right. But what a lot of people do, because what happens if you make money is then you have to pay taxes on it. And that's not the goal. Um, again, you're making your living on your day job and your whole goal with the farm is just to kind of like keep it going, right? Like you, you want to make a little bit of money, but you don't want to hit like huge windfalls. And that's a lot of the real reason that tractors and combines are getting bigger and bigger and bigger is people need somewhere to sock their money so they don't have to pay taxes on it. So if you buy it, then you get, then it's a capital investment and you get, um, um, then you can do depreciation and stuff on your taxes. So that's, that's, that's what a high percentage of pickup truck sales is about. Um, <laughs> like you need one or two to make a farm run, but you see a lot of farms with way more than that. Um, that's where a lot of farm equipment sales comes from. Cause there's, it makes sense to own a combine when I, I don't know what the exact cutoff is, but we'll say 5,000 acres. It makes sense to actually own your own combine at 5,000 acres. Um, there are lots of people who own that much land. There's also lots of people who don't and still own a combine anyway. Um, Cause number one, it's, it's a, badass piece of equipment. They're like two stories tall. You're driving one around. You feel like God. It's amazing. 
Um, <laughs> and then again, the other thing is like they need to sock money away into something. The, the other thing you can do instead of owning a combine, because believe it or not, life is not forcing you to own a combine if you're a farmer. Um, there are combine crews that travel from Texas up to Alberta every, you know, every harvest season, just kind of following the the wheat and the corn and soybean harvest north, right? Mm. So you can just hire somebody to come and cut it for you. There's all these crews going around to do it. You don't have to own your own. And so and you can also do this for planting, right? Like those are your big, um, you know, those are your big equipments is like your planters, your seed drills, and then your combine. So those are those are most of your equipment needs. You don't have to buy a car. You can rent an Uber. Like that thing also exists with farm equipment. And so it's fascinating to listen to farmers kind of talk about like, oh, but we have to buy this equipment and it costs so much. And you're like, you really don't. That was a choice that was made, right? <laughs> well, you talked about the earlier in the thing about uh, about the fact that, you know, it you know, policies don't really, you know, change a lot. But I guess you talk, I mean, I think what really is really true is policies when interpolated within the region of where we're willing to consider, you know, mm -hmm. are usually just going to favor what we what we already have. And if you mm -hmm. talk about, oh, we want to have farmers, but let's just kind of help them out when they already get their pickups and their combines and, mm -hmm. you know, all this kind of stuff that is that is heavily structured and say, oh, yeah, this is the kind of farming we want. If the policies were radically different, this would, you know, at the right level, uh, change people's uh, change people's behavior. But how do you get the political will to really do that when it's it's not going to excite a lot of people to say, oh, let's reform, uh, you know, uh, pickup truck depreciation rates and taxes. <laughs> There's a very right. Yeah. I mean, the people who have pickup trucks care a lot and everyone else doesn't know about it and is already starting to get bored just hearing about it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think you make a fantastic point. It's a losing proposition to try and do technocratic farm reforms. Right. Because like even in farm country, like anytime you try and do something kind of like it's big into its conformity out there. Like if you try to go, Hey, I need to work more like a business. This isn't just a lifestyle. Like, you know, I need to steward the land and I need to kind of like behave professionally and kind of like have professional contacts and, and be a professional. Um, you kind of get sandbagged as being like a big, bad corporate agribusiness guy um, <laughs> for being a professional. That's what that's really about is it's about discouraging professionalism. Um, like in farm country and in, in the suburbs and in the cities, I think we mean something else when we say agribusiness is bad. We mean the environmental effects out in farm country. It's talking about like, don't treat this like a professional. That's not how we roll. This is just like a lifestyle. And but by the anyway. same tokens, you know, you talk about agribusiness is bad, but it's not like small. It's not like small performers don't mm -hmm. don't wreck the environment just as much. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think here's the thing is, is people think small family farms and agribusiness are like opposite ends of a spectrum. And they are, in fact, just two sides of the same pancake. Right. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of small family farms that don't have just they're, they're stuck in a jack of all trades spiral and they can't really get out just because of under resourcing. Right. So they depend on a lot of agribusiness inputs and human trafficking just to kind of like keep scraping by. Right. And then you also have the big old landlords who are now big old landlords who run their county with no opposition because of agribusiness. They're the ones who invited them into bed, right? Because they found that more appealing than being accountable to their workers. That was a choice that they made, you know, and now they have like the nerve to go and complain about the consequences. Like how dare someone else be involved in this business besides me? I own land and that's supposed to be enough, you know? So there's, 
there's a lot of different ways in which quote unquote family farming, be it big or small, um, really kind of dovetail with agribusiness and need agribusiness to continue. And so it, again, it kind of makes me nuts that people talk about them like they're opposites when they are in fact like a hand in a glove. And I, I guess one question I have is as we are now getting to the fact that, yeah, it's everything is less labor intensive, at least for, you know, non, uh, yeah, I guess non-seasonal, uh, it's, it really changed the way cities work as well. I was, uh, mm -hmm. I, I found an article from like Fortune magazine in the 1930s I was reading over about uh, a study of kind of a smallish town in Illinois or something that was mostly, uh, you could see it, it was mostly a farming town and it mostly worked because there were so many farmers nearby that they could both, you know, sell supplies within the town, a lot of middlemen make a cut. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's like this whole industry of people who mostly just help out the farmers. And mm -hmm. you can see a, a town of this size, when there aren't so many farmers anymore, what is their export industry? It completely goes mm -hmm. away. And these towns have more or less been, you know, increasingly disappearing and struggling, usually not, usually not well. It's, it's very hard for a town to shrink well. And uh, mm -hmm. I, 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 I just don't know if I talk about like, if I'm imagining what is the good future of farming? Is there like, is it does it involve... Yes. Like it, to me, I see much more hope in, you know, high capital intensity, you know, greenhouses and vertical farms close to our urban cores and job markets. And I just mm -hmm. never I just can't even imagine the best of cases. What should these small towns do? Right. So um, so the main thing we want to talk about here is vision for the future. And I do want to push back before we do that real quick on this whole like small town supported by small family farmers mythology. So we've already kind of talked about how the small family farmers thing was never really real, right? So what was going on with these small towns? I don't think they were really built by small family farmers. I think they were built by landlords who had lots of extra spending money because of all their tenants. That's my theory. I need to go like look up some more data. But this whole, um, again, the Midwest and Plains mythology of being dotted with small towns because of small family farms. Well, we know the small family farms wasn't as much of a thing as we think, right? Yeah. Which really throws like, and that's where the towns came from into question. And um, like, you know, even today, like cities tend to, and towns tend to have like the nicest things when you have a lot of people making like really high end incomes. Like that's why everybody's always trying to attract tech, right? You always do really well when you have like, even if it's a small number of people, when they have a lot of disposable income, they make a town really nice. And I suspect that's actually where a lot of these quote unquote small towns came from was from just landlords having lots of spending money. That's my suspicion. I mean, you can see in this, there is a huge, you, there is an upper class in this one. It's been a while since I looked at it, but you could say there is this really high landed uh, aristocracy in the town who has a lot of of, of, of extra money. And I think that's mm -hmm. absolutely true. If you talk about kind of discretionary spending within the town, uh, largely mm -hmm. comes from, from these people. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's my suspicion. And I, I don't know if any historians have looked at that because the, the mythology of just the small family farm itself is so entrenched. I don't know if historians have gone like, Oh, we should go question this. Um, which is, it's kind of whack because I've seen some historians do this, but the last one I saw was like back in the seventies. So this is a thread of like historical inquests that as far as I can tell may have been completely dropped. So it's just been a long time since anybody's looked at it. Um, and that's allowed like the mythology to run rampant. Well, I guess the question anyway. too is like, where does the landlord live? Is this a landlord mm -hmm. that lives? I mean, when you talk about the Irish potato famine, 
there is mm-hmm. so much about these landlords were living in London all the way mm-hmm. away as opposed to it could be, uh, you know, a landowner could be living in your own town and just kind of be an, another neighbor in a way. But mm-hmm. this, I mean, I, I certainly see this with kind of residential landlords. One person mm-hmm. may own $100 million in real estate and he's just living up the block or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, Again, so I live in the land of Southern gentlemen, so I think this question looks a lot bigger to people who don't live around rentiers <laughs> than it really is. Um, you know, some of them live here. Some of them live off in New York City. They live fabulously either way, and they're slumlords either way. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't really think it makes that much of a difference. You'll also get, like, nowadays, particularly in the last five or ten years, of, as corn and soybean prices have been pretty high, um, you get a lot of the bigger farmers who, you know, maybe sixth, eighth generation farmers in somewhere in the Midwest, but they're doing real good. And so they get a winter house down in Phoenix. So here's the question. Are they an absentee landlord scalping uh, Illinois? Like, are they a home guy who has a winter home in Phoenix? Or is he a Phoenix water baron who has a giant patch of water-rich land somewhere else, and that's how he's making his living? Who is this guy? He's all three. <laughs> yeah, this idea of like, oh, it's absentee landlords are obviously so much worse. And then also foreign landlords are the very, very worst. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's the same mechanism all the way around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's actually really interesting. So like Smithfield Pork, which is a giant pork processor here in North Carolina – just got bought by a a Chinese-owned company within the last year or two. And it's fascinating because for for decades, you know, these swine farms are disgusting, right? And they're they're they have all these pools of of swine poop and they'll spray liquid swine poop on their fields and it reeks and it's horrible. Um, but they never could get the political will to regulate it because Mm. every time you did, you know, you have all these uh the the pigs themselves are being raised by family farms that are subcontractors. Uh, for the big swine operations, right? So they're, it's fascinating because they're family farms. They are family farms. They're doing stuff corporate style because they're a subcontractor. So again, like, which are they? Are they a corporate farm or are they a family farm? Well, they're both. That's how it works, right? Um, so every time there was an attempt to regulate this, there would be this howl going up. Like, those are small family farms. You're going to legislate them out of existence. Save the small family farms, yada, yada, yada. You can't do that. And that was, I think, very much a deliberate tactic uh, in some ways on the part of the big swine processors is if they can kind of fence it off onto somebody else, then it'll never get regulated because small family farms have too much of a golden reputation. You know, like people didn't understand that relationship. But now that Smithfield's been bought by a Chinese company, all of a sudden there's political will to regulate. That is that is very funny. Right. So like in some ways, environmentally, that might be the best thing to happen for the North Carolina swag, like swine industry, like ever was getting bought by the Chinese. Right. So um, it don't work like people think it does. So I think, yes, yeah, as, as we are wrapping down on time, uh, I guess we we're talking a few a few minutes ago. Uh, what is we your talk? What's yeah, it? we should talk vision for the future. Yeah, Exactly. That's what I want to talk about. <laughs> so, yeah, well, what... we've been. Yeah, we've been griping a lot. We should not let people down. So. So here's what I I see as being very workable, right? Because we have living models of it being very competitive here and now in the U.S. under our current policy regime. You don't have to change any policies to make this happen because people are already doing it and it works great, right? So we kind of talked about these native operations that have, you know, their own organization. Um, 
you know, and, and they have like kind of a different legal structure. So I don't know if that's a hundred percent imitatable. Um, but we also have, um, this religious group called the Hutterites that do something very similar. Um, I don't know how much people know about the Hutterites, so we can talk about them real quick. Sure. Okay. So they're, they're Anabaptists. So they're somewhat related to the Amish. They're kind of like cousins. Um, so the deal with the Amish is they don't believe in modern technology, right? Um, but they all have their own individual farms. Like they still kind of do the homestead model. Um, and they have all these individual family farms that collaborate very closely together, but they're still broken up into individual units, right? The Hutterites are totally okay with modern technology. They love combines, right? But they own all their farm and their equipment and tools in common because mm. it says in the Bible, Christians should own their property in common. And they're like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. Um, and lo and behold, it actually turns out to be a very competitive business model. Um, so they tend to live in, you know, the, the Great Plains, like kind of the northern Great Plains and the Canadian Prairie provinces. So you're having uh, very harsh growing conditions, very short seasons, um, and they're thriving. The, uh, the family farms around them are dropping like flies and they're doing okay. And in fact, the, the family farmers around them, like kind of talk about them like they're the Borg, like they're unstoppable. When they buy up land, it never goes on the market again because they never fail. And I'm like... That sounds awesome. How do we do that? Um, that's that's always like the big thing of like you have to make the choice between inefficient sharing and socialism or very efficient capitalism. When really, in a lot of ways, the way we reprivatize ownership is desperately inefficient. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like, and it is funny that in a lot of ways, what is a way forward? It's not just zero sum toppling them over as much as yeah, maybe maybe better. Uh, you know, kind of collaborative uh, communal solutions can actually eat them alive. Right. Yeah. And uh, so like the Hutterite model, I don't think it's perfect. I don't think anybody's perfect. We're all human and stuff. Right. So we can, we can talk about that in a second, but something that's really interesting to me is um, so the, the basically like a little village of like 50 to 150 people, which includes kids and they'll have, they'll be vertically integrated. So they want a lot of your family farms. Like they either grow grain you know, or they grow cattle or something like sometimes they'll kind of do both. Um, but the Hutterites will do like four to eight of these things at full scale because they have enough people to do that. Right. So they'll grow grain so they can make their own feed to feed to their dairy herd or their chickens or their, you know, their hog farm or something like that. Um, and again, they're all doing it super conventional style. I think probably in large part because they're living in these super isolated harsh areas where like you could grow really nice tomatoes, but there's no one to buy them. So uh. <laughs> like they, um, they have a, like a, a big garden kind of for growing their own produce, but that's not really a big sales segment for them just because they're very isolated. Um, so they tend to tend to be more on the grain and livestock side just because of their region, but they're vertically integrated. Like they do the grain and different kinds of livestock and the prices for these things tend to fluctuate kind of, um, inverse to each other. So like if grain prices go up, livestock prices tend to go, uh, down because it's going to cost a lot to fatten those livestock. So if they're doing one and well, they're doing badly in the other and they kind of tend to balance each other out. Mm. I explained that very badly, but you get the idea. Divorce is good, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's... That's a, that's a financial fact. <laughs> and um, they're able to do all these things at a scale and they're able to vertically integrate and they're able to kind of balance themselves because they just have enough people to do it. Like small family farms can kind of diversify it, but you have like three pigs and two cows. Like you can't, 
really make that work in a way that actually integrates well into modern markets and reality. And they can. And I imagine, um, too, for the same yeah. reason that, you know, kind of a religious bond can tend historically to lead to high trust environments that lead to very, you know, uh, very good internal markets. And I think historically you look at like the Quakers and uh, the Jews of, of, you know, in like different different communities like that can really uh, can really leverage their internal trust for each other very well. Right. Yeah, they can. So, so fun story. We'll get to this in a second, but like I actually grew up Mormon and it did not, it did not take, (laughs) it didn't go too well. So I'm actually like very, very well aware of like the dark sides of very close knit religious communities. Um, if anybody's seen Midsummer, (laughs) you know, um, it was very relatable for me personally. Um, but just a quick note and we'll get back to that. Um, the Hutterite tent communities, tend to farm half as many acres as the family farms surrounding them. And yet they're doing a lot better, Mm. which is really interesting to me. Like if we're talking about kind of like bringing people back to rural areas, if we're talking about like sustainability and actually getting better, um, like using the land more effectively, I think this is a tremendous model for doing both of those things and doesn't make the family model look that good. Uh, (laughs) Which maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why we don't talk about it is like we kind of have just decided that family is the way we have crowned it, the path forward, and we're not going to admit any, you know, discussion of that. Um, but yeah, like it works really well for all the metrics that we're trying to to do as sustainability people. And I think it allows us to do a lot more with less land, which means we can kind of do a lot of prairie restoration. We can put a lot of carbon into soils um, that have not been having carbon in them for a very long time, thanks to bad farming. So it allows us both to do the farming part better and to do ecology better. And and kind of even on the farm, you know, like the ecology there can be better because we can take better care of it. So, yeah, I think there's huge potential in that. If you were to kind of translate that into a non-religious, non-tribal model, it's probably just an employee opportunity, like employee owned farm. Like it's, it's pretty straightforward. So I guess another question is like you talk about future visions. When you talk about things that are actually really utilizing land and capital well, such as greenhouse and, and uh, vertical farms, I'm always I guess we can talk about how difficult it is to kind of use policy as your lever. But I kind of feel if you have to swing for the fences, boy, uh-huh. it would be nice to tax the land, especially close to our cities higher so we tend to actually say hey please grow greenhouses near mm-hmm. near job markets uh as opposed to saying hey please use land very very inefficiently near our cities right. please um, divide this into five acre horse ranchettes yes. so it can be suburbs that eat up the most possible land for the least possible like benefit to anyone because um, it feels like we are getting, uh, from, from hearing all of, of, of your descriptions, a lot of really exciting, uh, you know, technology and, and people working in, in these fields, but they're kind of going uphill because, like, it's mm-hmm. like, why work hard <laughs> instead of, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's for suckers. Right. Well, yeah. And so, like, that kind of gets back to our colonial history, right? Like, it's people kind of talk about, like, why are you so mad about the land theft? It was so long ago. Well, we're still living that life, right? We're still living like this locust style of farming that we developed because we grab so much land that it's cheap. We can, you know, it used to be that we just wear it out and then homestead a new patch. Now we just kind of farm until it's too expensive. And now we go buy a new patch. Like that's how we're farming right now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really frustrating to me because again, you hear a lot of discussion of like, 
oh, these folks were forced out of farming because there was real estate development and they couldn't afford to farm anymore. And I'm like, well, you were growing corn and soybeans on Long Island. What did you think was going to (laughs) happen? I think on Long Island it was actually potatoes. But, like, you could have seen that development coming for 10 or 20 years and people kept growing potatoes. Like, thinking that was going to work out, it frustrates me to no end. Um, And and it's just, yeah. (laughs) And if they, they were, were clearly planning to cash out at that point, if they were not upgrading to greenhouses or something like exactly. I just don't know how to tell you guys this. Um, so we give them the, the soft landing as far as cash out for subdevelopments as opposed to a better outcome would be, hey, if you want to stay in, in the biz, grow, grow better greenhouses and do things more intensively. And we mm-hmm. we essentially never we never get that right. in the end to the level we need. Um, you know, the economic incentive for that is already there. Again, that's one of those things where you don't really need a policy lever because it's already more profitable. So for whatever reason, we have a structure that's not responding to that profit motive, probably because the cash out option is so much better. Um, so there's there's a whole lot to unpack there. Something I will mention in terms of the greenhouse industry in the U.S., uh, we don't have the human capital to run greenhouses and we don't even have the human capital to like look at a business plan for a greenhouse and tell if it makes sense. That's really our big problem. It's they make sense financially. It's kind of funny because there are certain counties in California where like every once in a while an American farm will try to put together a greenhouse, but it's very small scale and never goes anywhere. And the Dutch, like there are Dutch companies just kind of like bloop, 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 like popping them out all over the place because they know the business model. They have a bank that knows them. Um, they know how to operate them. And so that's really just a legacy of us having way too much land and water is we haven't even developed the human capital to be efficient with it. So that's really the big problem here. It's not that there's lack of financial incentive. There's already tons of that. It's that we just don't know how to use that financial incentive. Well, I feel like does it get does it get the best and the brightest and people who aren't just, oh, I was born into the farming business. I stay in it, which is great. You know, I mean, nothing wrong with that. But it's not if you aren't in the farming business, I don't think many people really consider it. Um, you need you know raw material of, of humans that can learn and then you need to teach them all these things we've been learning. It's like I, I, I'm not sure if we are if we're actually willing to kind of allocate people, capital, resources, education, or if we're just kind of, no, farming solved, you know, you just kind of do mm-hmm. it the way we've been doing since Jefferson. It's like, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. It's super messy. And so like, that's kind of something that I ran into, right. As somebody who wasn't born into agriculture and kind of had to work my way in is, um, you know, it, it's like in order to make a place for yourself, you have to learn how to do things that farmers either can't do or just don't want to do. Like they're too unpleasant, like paperwork. <laughs> so what was the first thing that got you into farming from not being in mm-hmm. your background? You know, I just liked working outside and I just really clicked with plants, you know. Um, I think that's the draw for a lot of people into agriculture. It's like the ideal profession for the socially disinclined. Um you know, but then it turns out if you want to take care of plants, you have to take care of the people who take care of the plants. So, you know, I, I started out in kind of minor field work, uh, did some time in factories, food service, just all that general stuff, working my way through school, did soil science in undergrad. And then I was like, cool, well, now I get dirt, but there's still no jobs for me. And there's a lot more to it. So I'm going to learn some more crop science stuff. So I got a DPM, which is like a veterinarian for crops. You learn about bugs you know, like integrated pest management, you know, how to keep weeds down, just all that crop stuff, right? So this is somebody who's, you know, you're getting highly trained to to operate crops and to like basically run a farm 
really, really well, right? That is that and is then, fascinating, though, that like yeah. with, with an undergrad degree in soil science, there wasn't just like you couldn't just immediately start working with that. There wasn't jobs. out Yeah, there? I mean, like if we had lived in California, probably, but that's not where life was letting us live at that time. So, again, like if I went out to California, yeah, you can get a job pretty readily because that's the only place in the U.S. where farming is a job that you can get. So that, that's actually kind of where I was going with this is yeah. like people talk so bad about corporate farming, right? But they don't understand that what it means is farming is a job that you can get and you can get better at it and you can get on the job training and you can develop a resume and work yourself up, right? Because if it's a family farming system, you're either born into it or you're not. And you could like maybe marry your way in, but then you have to be a gold digger, you know, <laughs> to farm, right? Which is, I don't know. I don't think that's any better. I worked a lot with corporate farming in California and I was like, this is not actually the worst thing. There's an on-ramp for people who want to get into the business um, the corporate firms that want to do things right actually have the resources and the human capital to do things right. Now, not all of them want to do things right, but they actually have the ability if they choose to do that because of their scale. Right. And that was kind of a wake up, you know, for me, it was like, wait a second. Um, you know, corporate farming is, is not the great Satan that we've been made in it, making it out to be. There's a lot more to this picture. There are actually some pretty good things about it. Um, how do we capture those things that are good and kind of try and build out the things that are negative about it. Right. Um, so that's kind of a lot of where, you know, and just watching how native and Hutterite operations do their thing. I was like, Oh, that is how you capture the things that are good about it <laughs> and kind of drop the things that are not so great. Um, I could imagine other things yeah. too. Like uh, you could talk about more of the, uh, a lot of people are enamored with social wealth funds. If you say, Oh yeah, try to have more of a, a public ownership within large firms that do things well, but make sure that their profitability doesn't just go to a small amount of shareholders, like, you know, mm -hmm. stockholders, but go to kind of public coffers and public programs. That's, there are ways to, I think, try to look forward and like, how do you have public benefit and also well-run high-scale operations? Right. Yeah. Well, and it, it's kind of funny because I think folks, we have this myth, right? That you can't have something you can't make things that are both affordable and just right. Like the price has to come out somewhere. Like it's very like Christian mythology, right? Like the world has fallen <laughs> and we can't do things right. Right. So it's, it's either got to come out of the, the workers, uh, the environment, or like the customer has to pay a ton. Right. But you look at companies like Costco and Toyota and again, nobody's perfect, but, um, they're both very worker centered. They pay people well, they train them, they retain them long-term. They have a real commitment to their staff and they also make products that are high quality and affordable. Well, I was told this was impossible. <laughs> um, so the missing, the thing in that, uh, that nobody really seems to talk about is like Toyota and Costco and other companies like them have tons and tons of management skill. Um, what seems to be going on in a lot of companies is they just have really crappy management. They're not effective. They waste their employees' time. They don't know how to get and maintain good equipment that makes good uses of everybody's time and high productivity, um, which is like management's one job. They have one job to do, right? If you want to waste people's time, you have to have a captive audience of workers who are <laughs> desperate to make money, have no other good options, and you can just push them around a lot. And you talk about... <laughs> You know, if this is back in chattel slavery, that's a very that's a very captive audience. But even yeah. now, not many people can say, I'm not going to work for a bad company. I'm going to wait mm -hmm. till something is better because 
people don't mm-hmm. tend to have much leverage in that sense. Right. Yeah. And I think there's there's actually a book about this called Accounting for Slavery that traces like American business culture uh, and to some extent European business culture, too, because they were super involved in this all back to slavery. Like a lot of our business tactics and attitudes and approaches and management culture were built in slavery times. And we keep trying to come back to that home. Right. Um, so the company, so that's why we view that as normal. Like you either make really cheap, crappy products and, and, you know, uh, and that's why they're affordable or you make really good stuff, but you can't afford it. Right. Nobody really talks about management has a role in kind of streamlining that production process so you can have good outcomes for everybody. We never talk about that because management's always kind of like trying to erase its own responsibility in this whole process and just go like, oh, I'm sorry, it can't possibly work. Um, Just believe us, right? Um, And yet we have companies like Quick Trip, Costco, Toyota, you know, treating their workers well, making low cost, high quality products all day, every day. It's clearly possible. Um, And I've actually run into a lot of farms that kind of use a similar approach where they really invest in their people, they really invest in their land, and they have amazing results. But we never talk about that. And so I think kind of the scary implication of this is that a lot of the tomfoolery that we're seeing that we're blaming on quote unquote capitalism and we're blaming on the profit motive actually has nothing to do with profit. It has everything to do with an emotional need for control and with management's unwillingness to take any responsibility in its outcomes. It goes down to is the problem with quote unquote modern capitalism is it the fact that it's so damn productive and it's so damn efficient and so damn good, really or, is it, or is it the fact <laughs> it's the opposite of that and it's incredibly rent seeking, inefficient, and exploitive? And mm-hmm. let's actually target the exploitation mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to yeah. saying, oh, it's it's the whole it's the whole thing. We just need to go back to nature or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, and the thing is, like, getting sustainability and treating workers right that takes so much discipline. There's nothing natural about it. And so it's really scary to me to hear the sustainability community kind of talk about how like we need to get back to, we need to go back to like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We need to go forward. We don't have anything in our history where we did it right. Like when was that exactly? Right. Um, we need to move forward. We need to learn how to like learn these disciplines. Um, you know, work hard, play hard. You don't need to be at your job 12 hours a day. Um, but when you're there, you need to be committed. Right. Um, you know, you need to be disciplined. And especially if you're in management, like you need to learn some stuff about people. You need to learn some stuff about systems design so that you can make sure you're not wasting your people's time and treat them right. So they stick around and are productive. Um, and that's something the sustainability community really doesn't seem to talk about. And that scares me, honestly. So so I think we probably do need to wrap up. We've been talking for quite, quite a bit. <laughs> but I guess like one final thought, as far as sustainability, what, what does make you, I guess, optimistic that we can actually, uh, you know, see this start to to really take hold in, a, in the scale we need uh, soon. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you a couple things. Uh, so one, there is a really good model that exists, right? Um, number two, never try to start farming by yourself or by buying land. Those are like two classic rookie mistakes, right? So the great news is, if you've ever heard people talking about how uh, a lot of farmland is owned by quote unquote hedge funds, So I'm sure some of that's true. There probably is some farmland owned by hedge funds, but a lot of it is owned by um, union pension plans. And so these are organizations that really have an interest in making sure that land is managed sustainably and in Mm. a way that works for workers. But I don't think they have a whole lot of like they just own the land and they really have to like rent it out to a farm to manage it. Right. 
So a lot of that's being done by like traditional, like the people who have been running farms there for a long time, they're kind of embedded in that culture. So I think there is a market, if you will, uh, for people who are ready to kind of build more collaborative approaches to it. There are landowners who want people like that to come operate their land. Uh, and there are young farmers who come from farming backgrounds who are not okay with what's been going on. Like there's, there's a whole little mess of them on Twitter and they're kind of angry and it's awesome. Um, so we have these three human desires really kind of come together. We've got the land availability and desire for sustainable management. We've got fresh blood and we've got people with the experience and the depth and the local connections. And we can bring those all together and make them work. So I think it's ready. I think we just kind of have to to communicate more about what the opportunities are and coordinate to take them. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's been really, really fun to talk. Yeah, thank you so much. This was super fun. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, follow up if you have any questions. We have been hearing from Sarah Tabor all about agriculture. And if you want to hear more, you can definitely check out her podcast, Farm to Tabor, available where all fine podcasts are. Previous episodes of this show can be found on the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford 99.1.